Hey, good morning. So how many people were here uh, last Sunday to hear the debacle over me trying to do math? How many people were here for that? Yeah, I'm glad I could entertain everyone uh, with, with that uh, horrific display. Uh, after the 11 o'clock service, um, some dear friends came to me who are both educators and said, um, you know, you got like every part of that wrong. And uh, I was like, you couldn't have told me after the 9 o'clock service, because that's the whole point of an 11 o'clock service. You thought it was to have more people here, but it's really just an opportunity for me to correct any errors in the sermon from 9 o'clock. So, um, but uh, anyway, so uh, there, were, there were all kinds of mathematical errors and calculations and such in that. Um, and uh, I'll just say that the point of the illustration was not lost. I was not so far off in my numbers. It was just the precision was not there. And so... Uh, Forgive me for that. I have um, pledged uh, to either never do mathematics again in the sermons, or uh, this uh, couple friends of ours have offered to um, uh, to be my mathematical consultants on all future references to um, formulas and such uh, in the future messages. So, um, thanks for your patience about all of that. No math in this week's message. All right, we're in Revelation 16. Uh, You likely know uh, the very common phrase "without." further ado. You've heard that before? Without further ado, uh, without any more uh, delay. And that phrase is so perfect as we come uh, to Revelation 16, because I feel like there's been a lot of a, a doing uh, up until now. We've been waiting and pausing, and, and, and everything has been building up to this very moment when we get to chapter 16, and God finally releases his angels to pour out his wrath on the earth in the form of these seven uh, bowl judgments. And those who so uh, vociferously opposed him are now going to face God's unyielding judgment. And the opportunity for repentance offered repeatedly through those 15 chapters, uh, which really represent the ages of human history, repentance offered over and over again to them Uh, now ends that offer with God saying, uh, this is the loud voice that we'll see in verse 17, the loud voice coming out of the temple from the throne at the pouring out of the seventh bowl, God says, it is done. And God's being emphatic about that. In fact, the choice of the word done here is emphatic. This has happened. It is a completed action. And beyond simply being an action that's completed, it's an action that has implications attached to it. The implication that what has happened is different from the previous state, as one lexicon says. In other words, what was is over, and we're moving on to something entirely new. And that is, in essence, the very gospel itself. It's the whole reason behind Christ's redemptive mission in the world to save us. It's that what was is no more, and something greater is now ahead of us. And so it is done isn't simply a word about completion. It's it's a word about completion and something brand new in front of us. And what's important for us now as we look at this is what are the implications for me and you? What are the implications of it being done? And we'd admit that along the way here, it might seem like the beast is so firmly in control and influencing so many away from Christ. 
But now in this moment, we see that he is utterly and completely defeated. It is done, and we won't ever have to worry about the beast again. Now, we're going to see a full description of the seventh bowl in chapter 17 and 18. This morning, we're focusing on chapter 16 to see why all of this matters so much to us as believers. Why does this phrase, it is done, and everything that's around it matter so much for us as Christians? We're going to start by reading the text, and so you follow along in your Bible as I read Revelation 16, 21 verses here in front of us this morning. The Apostle John writes, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and on its kingdoms, and its kingdoms was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in, the he in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Well, we can see in that chapter, as heavy as that is, 
we can see the very sovereignty of God, that God is firmly in control of all of this. And what we want to see in this message is this, in your notes and on the screen, when, when God in His sovereignty says, it is done, what will my response be? First of all this, I will see His terrible wrath poured out on the earth. This is what I'm going to see. Now, as I read through the chapter, you may have noticed some things. If you're a student of the Bible, you're going to notice that there are parallels to what we saw in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 8 and the plagues, uh, sorry, the, 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 the trumpets that were sounded in Revelation 8. Some, some close similarities. In fact, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you'll see in some of these uh, bold judgment, you'll see the very same thing that happened to the Egyptians when Pharaoh refused to release the Hebrews and allow them to go to the promised land. And there are some parallels here between these plagues. But the bulls, of course, here are of far greater intensity, far greater severity than the previous judgments. And in fact, these other judgments all point forward to this one culminating judgment at the end of the age, the final and complete pouring out of God's wrath. Now, a couple of notes as we begin to get into this that are going to help us frame, out, frame up everything that we're seeing. First of all, this, if you're taking notes, be sure to, to just note that there's more judgment to come. That even though we see this as the culminating judgment, there's more to come. And it's helpful to remember that what we're seeing here in 16, in chapter 16, is a specific judgment on the beast and all those who followed him. There's a specific judgment on him it's all those who rejected the Lamb of God and his offer for them to repent and find salvation in him at the end of the age. And so this is still in many respects, though it's a culminating judgment, it's still in many respects just a precursor to the end of the end. And then secondly, while we believe that there will be a literal physical judgment rendered on the earth and the people, we want to stop short of saying John is describing something here that we can fully understand. So yes, there are very specific judgments that we're going to see, but how and when and where these play out is still something of a great mystery to us. And we want to be careful, because I know some preachers will do this, but we want to be careful here about over-interpreting the text. Okay, can I get at least one person to say amen to that? We want to be careful about over-interpreting what we're seeing here. And we'll say more about that in just a few moments. But this much is clear from what we see. John in verse 1 says that he heard a loud voice in the temple telling the seven angels to go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. We defined the wrath of God previously, so we know what that is and, and what God is doing here. And in the first three angels doing that, the first three bold judgments, we see how terrible, how all-encompassing, all how devastating God's wrath, God's judgment is actually going to be. Verse 2, notice, it starts with these harmful and painful sores on all of those who took the mark of the beast. All those who worshiped the image that the beast had set up. Now, here's the thing about these end days, these, the, the, the last days of 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 human history. One commentator said this, in the end time, religion will no longer be a nominal thing. Everyone will have to declare their loyalty to Christ or to the Antichrist. 
and today we would say, when you look at the culture around us, religion is very much a nominal thing. And there are many, many people in our lives who have no religion in their lives, or if they have some sort of religion, they frame it up in terms of like, well, I'm kind of like a spiritual person, but I don't go to church. And I kind of believe in God. And religion right now is very nominal among the majority of people. But at the end, this ambivalence toward religion will not be possible. You will have to choose Christ or Antichrist. But if you choose Antichrist, if you reject the kind offer of salvation from God, if you choose Babylon, the world system, if you choose that, then the consequence at the end of the age will be these painful sores manifesting all over your body. No relief coming for that. Verse three, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. Every living thing died that was in the sea. Devastating consequences. You could talk about the consequences to the environment. You could talk about the consequences to the global economy, which commentators agree here. That's what's being talked about. If you take away the sea, you take away the possibility that human beings can live healthy and have any kind of well-being. The same happens in verse, verse four with the third angel and the rivers and the springs. They turn to blood. And listen, there's only one point that we need to see here in these first few verses. God's wrath is terrible. And people should be turning to him in faith to avoid it. But notice also when God says it is done, you and I will hear, see this next, will hear the angels proclaim his perfect justice. Now back in chapter six, we had this scene with these martyrs, these these folks at the, in, the, in the last day who are standing for Jesus, they're not denying the fact that they love the Lord Jesus Christ and the persecution comes down on the head to the extent that many of them are martyred. And they cry out, their prayers reach the throne room of heaven. You'll remember this in chapter six, verse 10. The martyrs cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? That's the question that every persecuted Christian, that's the question that every martyr for Christ asks. How long? How long will it be before you declare to those who have martyred me, to those who have persecuted me, how long, God, before you vindicate the fact that I was right to stand for you? It's a plaintive cry from the heart, but the answer comes. The answer is now. How long? Right now. The prayer's being answered here in chapter 16. God is vindicating the martyrs and all who have been oppressed for their faith. And the angels, in fact, as they see this all play out, the angels who are the servants of God and ministering angels to humanity have stood in between God and humanity watching all of human history. And in the moment where they realize that the prayer, how long, is now being answered by God, 
Well, they get pretty stoked about it. And on behalf of the humans who stand to benefit, they begin to worship God. And John hears it. And he writes for us in verse 5, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just, just are you, O holy one who is and who was. For you brought about these judgments. Verse 6, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve, the angel says. And then this echo comes back from the altar itself, verse 7. Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And that's a sticking point in our society today. It's a sticking point for many who don't know Christ that God would judge in this way or that God's judgments, in fact, would be considered just and true. So many people objecting to this point, many who resist the gospel, believing that God if this is the way God is, God is, here's a great word for you, God is capricious. He's impulsive. There's no thought to it. God's just judging people. He's just laying out his judgments. He's just wiping people out willy-nilly. That he's arbitrary in judging the world. And people, maybe people you've talked to have said things like, I can't worship a God who judges people in this way. People will say instead, and I'm only interested in God who's a God of love. In fact, I, I heard just this week someone say, um, you know, God is love. God is love. They're just pronouncing this understanding of God that they have. God is love. God is not a judge. God doesn't judge. And I'm like, dude, have you read the Bible? Because if you've read the Bible, you're going to see that God is a God who judge, judges, but he's a God who's Judgment is just and true, as the angel here declares. In fact, throughout Revelation, what we're seeing is that God's judgment is a precision strike on anyone who flatly rejects his kind and generous offer of rescue. It's a precision strike on all those who intentionally seek to draw people away from God. It's a precision strike on any who directly oppress those who love God. And that's what we're seeing in Revelation. It's not random. It's not impulsive at all. In fact, his justice and his judgment are rooted in his own very character, in his own holiness. It's all quite intentional and targeted. In fact, to this point, Many commentators note that God turning back in the previous point in, in verses three and four, God turning the water to blood is his just punishment for their deeds since they shed the blood of the martyrs. You like blood so much? You have a blood lust for Christians? Well, I'm going to turn all your water into blood. The punishment, in other words, fits the crime. Or as the angel said, it is what they deserve. 
It is God saying to them, you wanted to shed blood? Well, here you go. You can drink it. Now, that's heavy. It's hard to hear. But the most important thing for us is that we find application in what we're reading here. As we consider how we take this and make this work in our own lives, how does this apply to those of us that are believers? Two things come to mind. Again, if you're taking notes, just write these down. The first is this. We have it easy, don't we? We have it easy. You think about these martyrs. You think of people who are genuinely oppressed for their faith. And you think about how we live our Christian lives and we have it easy. We have it too easy, in fact. Cheryl and I are just getting to know a new couple to our church. We were with them um, a week or so ago, getting to know them. And this couple fled their country with their family due to persecution. I'm talking real persecution. They spent 10 years in another country, part of that time in detention for being in that country illegally was the only place they could go while they awaited asylum in a third country before getting residency here in our country. I said to them at lunch that perhaps the hardest adjustment they will have to make in coming to Canada is not our winters. It's always the thing we talk about. But the hardest adjustment that they will have to make is coping with the sense of entitlement that we as Canadian Christians have. We are so very entitled. We, we think that we deserve all that we have. We think that somehow we're favored by God in such a way that we deserve the peace and the prosperity, the freedom that we enjoy. And the reality is that someone who's had to escape their own country simply because they have faith in Jesus Christ lived 10 years waiting to get into a country where they can kind of get going on their life again. That person, that person understands what's going on here in Revelation 16. They have a very different sense of reading this chapter. Because it's so hard for us to understand the need to be vindicated by God. We kind of go, yeah, God's going to vindicate us. God's going to vindicate us from what? There's nothing for us to be vindicated from. We don't understand this. So, so then we can be a little hard on the fact that God's even judging anybody. Oh God, why do you need to be so hard on them? Because we don't experience this. We don't really need to pray the how long, Lord. We're not like, like, we're not sitting on the edge of our seats hoping to be vindicated. It's hard for us to understand the need to be vindicated by God. But we're not persecuted for believing in him. We're so soft. We're so soft as Canadians. I would support any political candidate who would replace the maple leaf on our flag with a snowflake. Because that would be more honest. Our new friends have no trouble understanding why Revelation 16 is here. Second, this. First thing, we have it easy. Second thing, 
we may not have it easy for long. We may not have it easy for long. All I want to say about this is that you're seeing all these th same things that I am. Technology is advancing so rapidly, the world is shrinking, the concerns around globalization and monetary policy are pointing toward the hyper-control of the people by governments. And in such a system, there is no room for allegiance to Jesus Christ. This is the only thing I care about with respect to all those things. There is, there is and there will be no room for allegiance to Jesus Christ. And so we should never think, and this is the error that we're going to make, we should never think that we're going to find any kind of vindication on this side of eternity. It's not coming, Christian. We have to look beyond this age. We'll be sorely disappointed if we think that somehow we're going to be vindicated in this life. This passage reminds us that what the angels are celebrating is a yet future event, something worse still. We may have little tastes of it along the way, but it's something we're still waiting for. Hard times await and difficult choices will be before us, and so we need to know these things. All right, I feel like that's a whole sermon right there. Do you feel like you got enough today? You feel like you got enough? Do you want to vote on whether I go further? It's okay, we don't vote here. We're going on. <laughs> See this next. When God says it is done, you and I will witness the folly of those who refuse to repent. I mean, it's just remarkable how stubborn human beings can be. Amen? A better word, in fact, a lot of uh, my sermon time is spent just kind of thinking about best words to use. Stubborn's a good word. But, but an even better word, a word that's kind of like stubborn on steroids, is the word intransigent. Human beings are so very intransigent. We can't be changed. Our minds cannot be changed. With respect to surviving, sometimes this can play in our favor. In, in, with respect to surviving difficult circumstances, it's good to have a little stubbornness or tenacity in us so that we can survive these things. But when it comes to bending the knee to God, our stubbornness, our intransigence betrays us. Now look at this, verse eight, because this is what you're gonna see throughout the next section. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. Now I thought about talking about what might've happened here from a physics standpoint, but with the math debacle last week, I thought maybe I shouldn't go into physics. But obviously something happens here to allow the sun's rays, uh, to allow that to come down and to scorch people. Somehow the ozone layer is gone and no matter how big the number is on SPF, it's not helping. Verse nine, it's scorched. They were scorched by the fierce heat. Now this is the fourth ball. They've got sores all over their bodies. All the water on the planet is blood. All the animals in the sea are dead. Now the sun is just burning them to a crisp. At this point, at this point, you kind of think maybe they're going to get it. God, we get it. We're so sorry. We repent. We want to turn to you. Thank you so much for being so patient and waiting so long for us to come to you. Yeah, no. None of that. 
Verse 9 continues. Look at the latter part of the verse. They cursed the name of God. Not only do they deny him, but now they're cursing him out. Now, what's really curious about this? They knew that these plagues that were afflicting them were from God. They're not hiding the fact that they know that these things are coming from God. Just like Pharaoh knew that the plagues that were hitting Egypt were coming from Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Pharaoh never denies that. He doesn't try to explain it in any um, natural way. He accepts that what's happening to Egypt is from God. He just digs his feet in. He becomes intransigent. He's, He's stubborn. He's not going to repent. And at the end of the age, these miraculous signs, these plagues that are afflicting them, they know they're from God. No one is denying the fact that God is behind this, and that's what's so shocking about it. They know what they have to do. But verse 9 goes on to say, they did not repent. Repentance simply means, I agree with God and I turn toward him. They did not repent and give him glory. And the reality is, this is a picture of the end of the age, but this describes so many people today. Most people in Canada, you look at any poll that's been done over the last several years, every poll will tell you that the vast majority of Canadians still believe in God. In fact, blow this out globally. What is it? Seven, eight billion people in the world. Pew Research tells us that the vast majority of people in the world, the vast majority of the seven or eight billion people in the world are theists. They believe in God, not necessarily our God, but they believe in a God. They, they, they believe in the divine. They could believe in multiple gods, but they're theists. They believe there's a God. And in fact, it's less than a billion, according to Pew Research, less than a billion people out of the seven or eight billion. Less than a billion would be true dyed-in-the-wool atheists. Most people believe in God. So unsurprisingly, when we come to Revelation 16, these people that are rejecting God, who are seeing these signs, these aren't atheists. These are theists. They believe there's a God. They just refuse to acknowledge him, even while experiencing and acknowledging his wrath, even even while suffering under his wrath. And again, it's so shocking. Now, we, we can't change what's going on here. We can't change the fact that people who are confronted by the evident power of God refuse to repent and give him glory. We can't change that. As we see in, in verse 9, the stubbornness of these last days people is actually the stuff of legends when you see it, when they're experiencing so much, so devastating, and they refuse to repent. It's legendary because not even God, no one, not even God can change their minds about any of this. Now, the end of the age is one thing, but again, we're so concerned about how we take the book of Revelation and apply it today. When the first century readers received 
this revelation from John that God had given to John, they were asking the question, how do we apply this to our lives now? And we need to ask ourselves the very same question. How does this apply to us now? And so we have to ask this. What can you and I change to help people not get to this place of stubborn refusal of the gospel? Because we still have time. Let me ask the question again. What can you and I change to help people not get to this place of stubborn refusal of the gospel? I want you to ask this very personally. I want each individual here to do business with God and ask this. Because as I see it, it comes down to a very simple evaluation of each of our Christian lives. And I'll evaluate mine, you evaluate yours. Let's just kind of do it that way. Sound good? Sound good? Okay. Here's, here's, here's the statement you want to be able to make. And you, you can ask, you can probably in your own mind just say whether or not you can make this statement right now. I am living a Christian life that is consistent enough with the gospel that I am not personally giving any unbeliever an excuse to reject Christ. So I'm asking you if you can make that statement for yourself. I'm going to read it again. I am living a Christian life that is consistent enough with the gospel. So not perfect, okay, but consistent enough with the gospel that I am not personally giving any unbeliever an excuse to reject Christ. The unbelievers in your life may still reject Christ, but not because of you, if you can make this statement. That is a big issue right now. I mean, this is something that a lot of Christian leaders and a lot of Christians are thinking a lot about because there are a lot of Christians and a lot of churches and a lot of Christian organizations that have given unbelievers a lot of reasons to reject Christ. It goes as deeply as leaders in the church, broadly, who have spiritually and sexually abused members or known about these things and not done anything about it. Leaders in the church who have used, or organizations who have used their authority or position to groom and take advantage of those who trusted them to provide care. It's not random, and it's not just one. Multiple organizations, a large church that many of us know about an hour and a half away from here in the GTA, multiple staff members, a system that allowed this to happen in their midst, dozens and dozens of victims. Given what I've been reading about this, and I've been reading a lot about it, books and articles and talking to a lot of other Christian leaders about these things. And given what I read about it, what I know about it, if I were not a believer right now, I'd think twice about stepping into a church. I'd think twice, three times about stepping into that church in the GTA or any church that seems to be like it. I would think twice about believing the gospel that they taught. I take no pleasure in ripping 
on a church. I take no pleasure in ripping or exposing pastors who I at one time would have called colleagues. But we have to take stock when this kind of thing happens. In light of what we read in Revelation 16, we as Christians have to step back and say, what are we doing to hinder the gospel? Just as we as a church did several years ago when our former fellowship fell apart under a leadership crisis, we stepped back, we did an evaluation, we asked hard questions, we made the changes that needed to be made. Because we don't want anything to get between our unsaved friends and loved ones, between this community that does not know Christ and the gospel that can give them life. Now, what this means for us is every individual Christian should have the kind of testimony that draws people to Jesus and doesn't repel them, draws people to the cross, draws people to the power of the resurrection in their life. So do, when it comes to your life, is it holiness and love that people see in you? Do holiness and love exude from you as a person? Is that what people are thinking when they think about you? Are they drawn to the gospel? And again, we're not talking about perfection in holiness. We're not talking about perfection in your ability to love God and love people. But we are talking about the relentless pursuit of these things. But even then, even, even, even if we get this right, Revelation 16 is still sitting there. And so is Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 18 to 25, if you're taking notes, is actually a passage also about the wrath of God, just as Revelation 16 is. And in, Revelation, in Romans 1, if I could just summarize it, that even though God has openly revealed himself in the very creation, that we can know God simply from the creation, his invisible attributes, Paul says, are able to be clearly perceived, even though that is true. Men and women, Paul says, suppress the truth. And because they suppress the truth while seeing God, they are without excuse, Paul says, becoming futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts becoming darkened. And they exchange the glory of the immortal God for their own brand of worship, whatever that happens to be. And so what we're seeing in Revelation 16 is Romans chapter 1 playing out. Verse 10, the fifth angel pours out this bowl, darkness. People nod their tongues in anguish. Darkness just makes everything worse. Isn't that true? Darkness just makes everything worse. Verse 11, they cursed the God of heaven, did not repent of their deeds. We're just seeing this over and over again. Then this, after the seventh bowl, and we'll come back to the sixth bowl in, in a moment, but after the seventh bowl, notice verse 18, lightning, 
all these evidences of God's power, lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, great, a great earthquake unlike, unlike any other earthquake in earth history, utter destruction, verse 19 says, Babylon the great, this, this symbol, whether it's Rome or Babylon or, or even Jerusalem, corrupt Jerusalem, this symbol of the world system is made to drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. That's God vindicating. More destruction in verses 20 and 21 and their response to all of this. They curse God. They swear at him. They're futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts darkened. And as much as we may want to lament the state that they're in, they have been given every opportunity to repent and have refused that. It's sad. Finally, this. See that when God says it is done, it is a call to each of us to prepare. I'm going to prepare myself for Jesus' imminent arrival. Back to the sixth angel, verse 12, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. This is all preparatory for what is uh, to come. Verses 13 and 14, this describes the activity of this unholy trinity that we've seen before, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, who are releasing these demonic spirits who are pictured here as frogs, which was an unclean animal. These demonic spirits are going out with a message to the whole earth. They've seen everything that's been poured out. And now there's going to be this grand assembly of everyone that's left. All these armies of the earth are going to come together to do final battle. On the great day of, the God, of God Almighty, which is called, verse 16, uh, Armageddon. Uh, this is the only use of the word Armageddon in all of the scriptures. Uh, yet, though it's the only place, there are other places that speak of a final battle. Uh, much has been made of this. Um, I've had the occasion to visit Israel, uh, to be in what is called the Israelan Valley or the Jezreel, Valley of Jezreel, which is the Megiddo Valley. Um, it, um, uh, Mount Carmel stands at the end of it, and so you can be on Mount Carmel and look out over the entire valley. It's a massive plain uh, not too far from the Mediterranean coast, and uh, it was a location historically of many, many epic battles. Many Bible teachers today want to make that place, the actual final battlefield, there's no real need to do so. The reality is that this is the only mention of Armageddon, and the meaning here is less than clear. Lots of uh, preachers who like to get up and say certain things and make certain over-interpretations of things um, actually are not basing it on good scholarship. The scholars, the commentators who go deeply into these things um, make it quite clear and are quite unified in saying, we don't know. We don't know what exactly this refers to. What we can say is this. There will be a final battle, and this vo verse points to that final battle wherever, whenever, and however that takes place. And that's as, that's as far as we can go with it. And again, as we talk about that, as we talk about this final battle in Armageddon, and all of these things, there's no fear in this for the Christian, none whatsoever, because our confidence is in Christ. 
And it is instead a cue for us to be prepared for it. It's Jesus saying to us, and notice in verse 15 that in your English Bibles, verse 15 is in parenthesis because he kind of steps out of the action. He does this little Shakespearean aside to say something to Christians in this moment. And he says, behold, Jesus says, behold, I am coming like a thief. The point is that Jesus is going to come unannounced, unexpected. He's going to come suddenly. These mirror words that he spoke in the prophetic passage in Matthew chapter 24, mirror words that the apostle Paul used in, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And so Jesus says here, blessed is the one. I'm coming like a thief. I'm coming suddenly, unexpectedly. But blessed is the one who stays awake. You got to be awake spiritually, awake in your faith. When you're asleep, you're not aware of anything. To be asleep, lad says, to be asleep means to say there is peace and security. When you're asleep, you're at peace, you're secure. When you toss and turn at night, very often that's because you're anxious about the things of life. When you're sleeping like a baby, it's because you're at peace. And Lad goes on to say, the illustration here is meant to say that when you're asleep, you lose sight of the ultimate issues of life. You might even assume that security is to be found on the human level instead of in terms of one's relationship to Christ. That we're so passive about what's going to happen that we're placing our confidence in the things of this life and not in Christ himself. And so really, we need to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. We need to be awake, eyes open, watching for him, rather than on what's happening around us, whether that's negative or positive. There's no security at all apart from Christ, but there's all the security we need when we're in him. And so we must be, and I, I love this passage, and I want to share just a couple of verses, but Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 is a beautiful passage. The 2 and 3 say this, fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is the NASB version. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. I love the strength of that phrase. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, notice, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our confidence is in that what he did. For consider him, verse 3 says, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. He came and suffered the injustice himself. He too was martyred. He too looked for the vindication, a vindication that he would actually purchase by his blood and offer to all who believe. And why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Which, by the way, is the whole point of Revelation. The whole reason why it's been given to the church is so that we would not grow weary and lose heart. So that, so that no matter what might come in this world, we can approach it not with fear, but with excitement. Because we believe what we claim to believe. The gospel. That Jesus Christ endured the cross. That he was triumphantly resurrected from the dead. And that that is our hope. The defeat of the beast can only happen because of Christ's sacrifice and his victory. And so we're keeping, verse 15 says, we're keeping our garments on. We're dressed. 
ready for battle. We're prepared, we're watchful. All of which refers not to our wardrobe, but to our faith in Christ. Our walk with him. Our life of holiness. Our love for God and our love for people. And all of that to say, all of that to say, when God says, it is done. It is done. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we have um, already talked about the fact that you're so kind and generous toward us in the offer of salvation. And Father, there is a, a lament deep in our hearts for those who continue to reject you. And Father, we would earnestly pray that you would use us to lead many to Christ. God, could we see dozens, hundreds, thousands come to Christ? Tens of thousands more? Father, often the only thing hindering this is us. Father, help us to do the deep evaluation as your sons and daughters that we need to do today to determine whether or not we're in the way of anyone else coming to faith in Christ. Help us, Father, to redouble our efforts around holiness and love, to be more like you. Father, that we would see more come to faith in Jesus. Help us to have our confidence in you, Father, in all things, not to put our confidence in anything that we can see to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray these things.